Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and uh, I'm really pleased today to have David Hobbs on the podcast. Um, David is here to talk about the poet George Oppen, um, a real uh, favorite of mine and someone whom I've been wanting to have an episode on um, more or less since the podcast began. And for reasons that I think will become obvious to all of you, um, more or less since the podcast began, have I hoped that the episode on Oppen would be an episode featuring David Hobbs. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy to have him here with us today. Um, the poem that David has chosen to talk about is um, a poem by Oppen called Ballad. Uh, the poem first appeared in a December 1967 issue of Poetry Magazine and was um, later collected into Oppen's um, volume of being numerous. Um, the poem uh, will be available to you uh, textually via a link in the episode notes, so please um, feel free to, to click on that and look as we talk. Let me tell you more about David, um, though, before we get going. David Hobbs is an assistant professor of English at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada, where he's working on a monograph called What Can You Do Alone? Lyric, Sociality, and the Global Depression. Um, David is also the editor of a volume called 21 Poems. Um, he is the editor, the author of that volume is George Oppen. Um, David had the very exciting um, experience, which basically no one has <laughs> in literary studies, of having made a, a bona fide discovery in the archive of new, of new poems by a, a much-loved and very important poet, which he was able to bring um, to the many fans of Oppen in a volume. Like I said, the, the title of the volume is called 21 Poems. You can guess what the volume contains. It contains <laughs> 21 <laughs> Poems by George Oppen. That volume was published by New Directions in 2017 um, and, um, and is, a, is a really beautiful uh, little book, which David not only edits but introduces in a, with a lovely essay that I um, that I that I also quite admire, and um, and I will make a link to that book available to you as well um, if you don't have it already, as as maybe you do. David David is also um, with Richard Seaberth working on a book called Tempest Takendi, the Venice Notebook. So that it's another editorial project. Um, those notebooks are um, by Ezra Pound and Olga Rudge, and that, that book is also forthcoming from New Directions. Um, David is a scholar who, um, who is working on poets who fall in the, in the kind of New Directions sphere of influence, um, and, um, and that itself is something I think that might be interesting for us to talk about as the episode goes on, that it's like, who were those poets? What sense does it make to talk about um, a particular publishing house, uh, a particular press, as having a um, a kind of sphere of influence in the in the field of of modernist poetry. That's something that we might talk about. Um, David is also someone who um, edited with 
Kristen Grogan, a former Close Readings guest. Um, you remember um, Kristen came on to for this lovely episode we had on on Niedeker. Um with 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 Kristen, David edited and introduced um, a cluster on the poet Bernadette Mare for the Contemporaries at Post Forty Five website, and he has articles on um, on a variety of of poets, including I was very excited to see uh, recently uh, has a forthcoming up um, article um, scholarly article coming out on the poet Hanif Abdurraqib, not only the the poet but the former close readings guest <laughs> Hanif Abdurraqib, uh, a, a major claim to fame, I'm sure, for Hanif. But um, but it, it's it's really cool, I have to say, to see the ways in which the uh, podcast is uh, spreading its uh, tentacles or something in the in the poetry world, so that we can't help now but have um, guests who have worked with other guests and who have written about other guests and so on. It's it's a nice thing to see, um, David. David works not only in the scholarly vein, but in a kind of public-facing poetry um, criticism way as well. He's written um, reviews for The Nation magazine, uh, where, among other texts, he's reviewed another uh, volume by a former guest of the podcast, Anahid Narcessian's book, Keats's Odes. Um, David has a, a lovely review of that book um, at The Nation. And... Um, and, and perhaps more to the point with respect to today's episode, I, I want to call your attention to an article that David wrote for the scholarly journal Modernism Modernity on George Oppen, where David uses the poems um, that he discovered that the um, uh, the, 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 the book that I described a moment ago, 21 Poems. Where David, in, in, in his article in Modernism and Journey, David situates those poems in a way that not only recontextualizes the kind of narrative, the received narrative that we might have in mind of Oppen's particular career, and I think in ways that David and I will talk about in a moment, um, Oppen is someone whose career in poetry is, um, is something that people who care about him are always wanting to narrativize in particular ways. Um, I think... David sees not um, sees how the poems that he found in the archive at, in the Beinecke, um Library ask us to tell a, a slightly, perhaps a slightly different story about the career, or to add something to the story that we've been telling about that career. But he sort of in in what in one of the the moves that I find most compelling about um, that article, he sort of zooms out from the particularities of the the story of Oppen's poetic development to tell a, a larger story and and to think about how those poems um, add something to the place held by the category of the lyric um, itself a, a kind of highly contested and 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 interestingly developing category one that on the one hand and and this i think is an observation made by people like virginia jackson who i have to say another close readings guest um the category of the lyric is one that 
is is sort of uh, how to say this is going through a very crucial moment in its development into the category that we now call the lyric. I think Jenny Jackson would say something like this in the modernist period, and yet is a is a term that doesn't get much purchase, generally speaking, in the modernist period. So most modernist poets don't seem to be that the term itself, lyric, doesn't seem to matter very much, at least in a kind of surface way, I think, to most modernist poets. Well, David's work on Oppen, I think, reveals that there's more to the story than that, and that Oppen has a place in that story. And so I just think with all of this in mind, it's 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 a it's a rare thing to get to talk to somebody who is both um, sort of immersed in and conversant in the the kind of minutiae of of archival research and and knows a poet inside and out like David knows Oppen, and yet who also seems sort of um, uh, beautifully fluent and and able to talk about. Um, poetic history writ large, and and the place that a poet like Oppen holds in that history, um, and so I'm just I'm thrilled to have David Hobbs um, on the podcast today. I'm I'm thrilled to get to talk about George Oppen with him. David, welcome to Close Readings. Um, you're joining us from your from your from your <laughs> campus office, right? How are you doing today, David? I'm speechless. Um, thank thank you. <laughs> um, the you know I, I think I've joked with Cameron before that I'm maybe the first super fan of the podcast to be on the podcast and so <laughs> in in preparation I kind of tried to rehearse you know how I would respond to the the signature beautiful glowing kind of unfairly generous introduction and I find myself pe- speechless anyway um, but <laughs> thank you very much it's a it's a real treat to be here um, I'm sorry yeah. that the my windows don't face the coolies which is this like beautiful sort of coiling um like almost like river fjord structure in southern alberta the other side of the building does but if you want to see a i mean your listeners can't see the parking lot but if you wanted to see the parking lot i'd gladly show you <laughs> well my my listener our listeners can't see them i i, I see your blinds but I'm happy to, for you to keep the blinds closed, and and I and the listeners can imagine that behind those blinds are the coolies. Oh yeah, that's we'll just please. imagine that. <laughs> please do. <laughs> Filled with rattlesnakes and uh, oh man, deer sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Um, David, uh, you know, like like I think I, I sort of intimated in the in the lead up in the in the intro which i have to say wasn't unfair unfairly generous it was um you know um unfairly sort of not taking the full stock of your um of your work so far so if anything but i i think i intimated in in that intro that you know Oppen is a poet whom i love um he's for sure not a poet whom i know anywhere as well as you know him um, and if anything, I think, um, even as someone who I'm speaking now of myself, who, um, so my graduate training, such as it was, was in 20th and 21st century poetry, really in 20th century poetry. Um, Oppen was not a poet that I read in college. 
I don't think I read much of Oppen, even in grad school. Um, I think part of the reasons for that are, you know, the 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 ways that 20th century American poetry, perhaps in particular, um, has been sort of divvied up into competing uh, sort of camps and schools of influence and 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 so forth. And I happen to be in the other one or something. <laughs> um, so so you know, I I came to Oppen somewhat more recently and um, have been reading him with the admiration of a fan and seeing, of course, that those stories that we tell about schools and influence and so forth never quite capture the complexity of the the actual um, poetic landscape. And so I see ways that Oppen is in dialogue with poets whom you know, I have worked on and thought a great deal about. But all of this is um, a kind of preface towards my asking you to tell our listeners whom I, you know, I, I don't want to take for granted, you know, I don't want to take for granted that Oppen is a kind of household name for them. Who was George Oppen? Where, generally speaking, would you situate him in a history of 20th century poetry, let's say? Um, and, and maybe if we can, we can work up towards, towards where, you know, the particular poem that you've chosen sort of fits into that story that you tell, but let's just begin at the general level, like level who was Oppen and, and how should we think of his place in poetic history? Sure. Yeah. Um, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, I think, uh, probably you can't begin to introduce him without, I think, talking also about the poetic movement that he's generally associated with, which is the objectivist movement. Um, this is a group of poets. It's, it's like sort of annoying that they have the same name as the Ayn Rand kind of thing, but uh, <laughs> very different but kind of objectivism. Very, very different. Really, um, quite politically engaged on the left. Um, very self-consciously uh, Jewish, albeit in Oppen's case. And actually, that's sort of in the same way that like it's it's unfair to to you know generalize completely about the New York School. I think in some ways. Like mm-hmm. Lorene Nidecker, I think, is, is essential to telling the story of the objectivist movement as well. Um, but Oppen, for his part, grew up um, relatively secular Jewish in the Bronx until he was around 10 years old uh, and then grew up. Tell in the us Bay when area. he was born, David. Absolutely. Sorry. Uh, 1908. Good. So, okay. Um, I find yeah. just some basic dates sort of useful of to kind yeah. of get situated. Yeah, Definitely. Good. 1908. Numbers, okay. Things, places. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All of those things will These be important are, in this conversation. Absolutely. And yeah. to his aesthetics. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so, Go on. Um, yeah. So the, the objectivists um, with Louis Zukofsky, who I think is really the kind of um, animating kind of impresario of the movement, as well as Charles Reznikoff, who I sometimes joke is kind of like the Benjamin Franklin sort of elder statesman who's already kind of doing the poetics that they love, but you know, right. has a, an essential kind of mentoring role. Um, but also very much are beginning to write poetry in the late 20s and and early 1930s um, under the influence of in kind of not not strictly an imitation of, but in an attempt to continue the kind of experimentation that Ezra Pound and William Carlos Williams specifically were pursuing. Um, Right. So uh, if if imagism and HD certainly is part of the story too, although weirdly doesn't seem to show up in the correspondence all that often, if, if the image was kind of the the thing for them, um, for Oppen, Zukowski, Niedeker, it's 
the object to kind of move beyond um, the surface to try to get your hands in as angular and abrupt and defamiliarizing poetic language as possible to the thing that produces the image. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to necessarily like you and I, David, are going to cringe at, at, at the too crude version of poetic history that we're telling here, but just for Definitely. the uninitiated then. Of course. Imagism, a movement where, like you say, Pound, Ezra Pound, the poet HD, and so those initials stand for Hilda Doolittle, right? Who, who, and, and William Carlos Williams, say, say take us three, and, and of course, Pound, well, all three of those poets would go on to write other kinds of poetry over their long lives. But at this kind of early moment, let's say in the 19 teens, they're writing, they're experimenting with a kind of poetry in which the point isn't what a poem means. The point isn't to necessarily even to sound a particular way. The point instead is for the poem to be a medium that kind of transmits or encodes the image as its essential unit. And so we can think of a poem, I don't know, give people like, what are the most famous well, you know, oh, I don't know, a poem the like Metro The Red poem. Wheelbarrow or, right, sorry. or The Red Wheel, The Metro poem, you know, right. In a Station so of the Metro. In a Station of the Metro or w- Williams's um, Red Wheelbarrow poem, poems that that don't even sort of have predicates. They That is, they, they just present you with an image and the point isn't that something happens to the image or whatever. The point is to is to get the image presented to the reader whole somehow. And for Oppen, at least this was what was distinctive about modernist poetry to him. Um, he he didn't write a lot of, or he didn't publish a lot of prose, but the one essay from 1962 that is generally regarded as being his kind of ars poetica, his, mm-hmm. his statement is called The Mind's Own Place. It, it takes its title from Milton's Paradise Lost, but he offers this like kind of potted history of what modernist poetry was for him that I think is quite useful. And it contains just, it's two sentences, and at the end of it is sort of, the most famous statement that Oppen makes on poetry. So it goes, modern American poetry begins with the determination to find the image, the thing encountered, the thing seen each day whose meaning has become the meaning and the color of our lives. Verse, which had become a rhetoric of exaggeration, of inflation, was to the modernist a skill of accuracy, of precision, a test of truth. Mm. So that is, as Oppen understood it retroactively from the early 1960s, the conditions on the ground and kind of poetic experimentation that he was encountering, entering into and seeking to kind of continue and intensify. And okay, that's a lovely way to put it. And so Oppen is a poet who is maybe a generation younger than um, these modernist poets who, you know, we come have come to think of as these sort of giants of the, of the early 20th century, people like Pound, a, a generation younger than them, and yet, because only a generation, perhaps, sort of s- coming up in a period in which they felt like very live presences, totally, and where he felt like he could capture something about what was so compelling about their their breakthrough or their break with whatever had come before, and maybe he's thinking of sorts of like late Victorian kinds of poetry or something. I don't know. So, you know, anyway, totally, and, yeah, and and yet to to sort of take those those early energies of modernism and somehow extend them into his own 
career yeah, what, to re to remake them somehow. I don't know. One of my favorites. So Oppen does, and I said he, he he didn't publish very much prose, but there's a beautiful edition that Stephen Cope edited with um, University of California. I, I think it's. I should just flip to the front so I can give you the exact date, uh, 2007, uh, and mm-hmm. it compiles his day books or these these strange kind of like scrap paper things that he would dash off kind of prose statements on and would eventually then bind together, but with like pipe cleaners. They're like really odd artifacts that they have in the archive mm-hmm. in San Diego. And one of the the tossed off phrases that comes kind of strangely after like a consideration of Amiri Baraka's poetry, Oppen writes, imaginary gardens with real Jews in them, which is sort of, I think his, <laughs> his, you know, his, his divigation to use a Maureen McLean term, uh, of Marianne Moore's famous statement about poetry, imaginary gardens with real toads in them. But just right. think about what it, how it felt for him and Zukowski to kind of enter into this world. That's great. So where the where the figure of the Jew replaces the figure of the toad in the in the in the Moore. Yeah. So that that that's um, yeah. Marianne Moore has a poem called Poetry, which you know famously begins, "I too dislike it." Um, and, and which winds its way towards telling us that what the, the, the poet, you know, the, the way we'll know we have real poetry is when the poets among us can present for inspection, imaginary gardens, she says, with real toads in them. Um, this, this sort of famous, uh, moment. Okay. I love that. <laughs> I love that substitution that, that Oppen gives, um, Tell us a little bit. So, so you've given us a, a sense, David, of of where kind of Oppen, of, of of the poetic landscape into which Oppen begins to write poems and begins to care about poetry. But as I teased for our listeners in the intro, his is a career which I think is is sort of ripe for narrativizing. So, do a bit of that totally. narrativizing for Ab- us. Like, oh, tell us, would- tell us what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I thought I thought you would never ask. Um, so, uh, so I think it's very difficult to tell the story of Oppen's entire career without talking about the great love story of his life and his relationship with his wife Mary. Um, the two of them meet in a first year poetry class at the University of Oregon, um, and famously, the the story of their first date is narrated in his poem um, "Forms of Love." Um, but the the real story was that the two of them went out for a drive. And wait, was that their first date? The forms it was of their love? first date. It oh was my the first god! Day. I know, right? It's, that's one of my favorite. That's so. It's one of my favorite. I didn't realize that. Okay, sorry. Go oh, on. Spectacular. Yeah. So they they go out for a drive in a canoodle, and they come back to campus after curfew, and George is reprimanded. But the school's quite misogynist sort of variant policy results in Mary being expelled, and she gets sent back uh, to Grant's Pass, where she is from, and George follows her. Uh, he drops out of school, and the two of them begin this life lived together. Um, when he turned 21, he received an inheritance um, as a result of uh, his mother's suicide, and the two of them decide that they're going to live quite intentionally and quite sparely on the money that that provides, and they end up kind of living bicoastally for a little while um, between New York and San Francisco. And in fact, there's a fascinating moment where the two of them are like fleeing the Pinkertons that his wealthy father has hired to pursue them. Before, mm-hmm. in 1929, the two of them moved to France to be close to the printer Maurice de Rentier, uh, who is sort of affiliated with Shakespeare and company, but because there were lessened import duties on paperback printing, he was quite good at it, and they were going to be the kind of overseers of the printing of this press that they were starting with Louis Zukowski, two publishers, which they always explained, two, right. like the date of case. 
Um, and so for those of us who have Latin, it's kind of a funny joke, but for those of us so. who don't, it's a little <laughs> obscure. Uh, and so Make Their Ways is this sort of second generation kind of apprentice, but like quite politically convicted. They're, they're falling in with leftist politics. They begin to read Lenin and Trotsky, borrowing them from Shakespeare and company, um, and return to the States in 1932. Um, yeah. Have this sort of disarming moment where they think that FDR is is a Nazi because he uses the Eagle iconography Um, and then become more and more involved in the communist party of the United States. Um, And then in a sort of pivotal moment in the late 19th, this is like in the thirties. Exactly. So um, in either late 1934 or early 1935, George and Mary attend a, a CPUSA, a communist party of the USA meeting in which the topic of discussion is what is an adequate Marxist art? And their comrades are offering the example of Ernest Hemingway, a spare, sort of brusque, action-oriented. And George speaks up and says, what about Henry James? What about rigorous psychological exploration? What about a really rich, detailed investigation of interiority and experience? And gets shouted down. And and the the way that he records this moment uh, in a letter to a friend is, and I realized at that moment, I couldn't make the art that I wanted to make while also pursuing the politics that I wanted to pursue. And so as of early 1935 stops writing poetry and doesn't write poetry until the late 1950s. There's this crazy, the usual term is a 25 year silence, which I think is kind of officially true from a publishing perspective, but, um, Lucas Moe, a brilliant uh, recent graduate from the Yale PhD program who's currently teaching at Wellesley, actually recovered some poems from the, the middle 1930s that trouble that, um, that dating. Uh, but he resumes writing poetry in 1958. And in part, it is because, no, it is because, I'm going to be really <laughs> sort of serious Good. about this. Yeah. It's because his daughter, Linda, sorry, oh, I can't believe I got ahead of myself because in the middle of this, <laughs> yeah, right. this sort of donut hole this extended silence he that goes in any case from the 30s to the 50s right yeah, yeah in, okay. in the middle of yeah. which he he uh acts as a campaign manager for the communist party in brooklyn um he begins to train as a machinist and uh effectively and he, volunteers he, for world war ii sorry go uh-huh. ahead no i was or gonna say know. he what gets to the part where he leaves the country right he yeah leaves, so he yeah. returns uh with one and a half feet um he has part of a foot blown off um, uh, mm-hmm. by a mine in World War II, uh, returns to the United States. And I, I believe they're living in Redondo Beach at the time um, when he starts being heavily surveilled by the FBI in the late 1940s. Uh, and the FBI makes clear that they are not going to leave the family alone. They're going to um, harass them mm. to the, you know, as, as much as they feel uh, entitled to. And George and Mary and their daughter, Linda, sort of decide they can't make a life in America anymore uh, with the politics that they they have and the experiences they've had. And so they they go into exile in Mexico City uh, and they live in the expatriate community with Dalton Trumbo and many of the members of the Hollywood blacklist through the 1950s. And in fact, George and Mary don't return to the United States until 1961. But in the fall of 1958, their daughter Linda goes to Sarah Lawrence. And in a first year, I believe it's an essay writing class, she just mm. randomly gets assigned to read poems that her dad had written that were published in his first book, Discrete Series, that was published in 1934. So, and just to be clear, like he hadn't written 
more than or published more than that. It wasn't like he was a fam- her dad was a famous poet whom of course she would have been assigned in a college class. No, and it's it's a collection. I mean, it's a collection that's really important to me, but I don't think that they printed more than a thousand copies of it. It's like an actually kind of astronomical coincidence that it right. just so happened that Linda gets assigned this work uh, in right. college and she writes to her dad to say, you know, uh, could you imagine if you still wrote any poetry today? And he writes back to her, uh, Linda dear, this is fall 1958. Uh, he's like, his letters are almost never dated. So this one just says Friday. Um, but Rachel Blyde mm-hmm. Plessy uh, has, has offered the hypothetical dating or the, the tentative dating fall 1958. And I should say too, that without the editorial work of Rachel Blyde Plessy, Michael right. Davidson and Peter Nichols, like none of my work would be possible. And if there, if there are any young grad students listening to this who are thinking about who to work on, they're just about the three nicest and most generous people in the entire world. And my work could not have happened without them. And so if, if you are not sure what to do, <laughs> you could really do worse than to work on a poet whose most important critics are as wonderful and you know, caring as they are. Um, George writes to Linda, uh, We continue to get printed stuff from Sarah Lawrence, which refers to us as new parents. They feel we never really were parents before we got in on these things. You write, quote, you'd write very differently if you wrote poems now. I send proof that it's not altogether so, somewhat to my horror. A difficulty about poetry or any such thing within a family is that one naturally expects that one's father or one's mother would say something clearer, more complete, closer to you, and more treasurable than, say, a Puritan stranger like Emily Dickinson. Can't always. Proving indirectly that conversation is really not an art. And so he starts writing again, largely at the provocation of his daughter. And from that moment in the late 1950s, it's it's worth mentioning that his sister June was one of the founding editors of the San Francisco Review, which was sort of like I think somewhere between the New York Review of Books and the Village Voice um, for the Bay Area, <laughs> but was it's a, a funny really, mix. Totally, I, I think. But what I mean is that it was cooler. I think than the New York Review of Books. Fair enough. Um, but uh, was a really influential poet or um, editor and critic and publisher, and so she also is sort of drawing George back into this world. Um, but in relatively quick succession in the 1960s, he publishes three books of poetry. Um, right this in which the materials and then of being numerous, um, which is a book anchored by a a 40 section serial poem that takes the title of being numerous. um, This is generally regarded as a protest poem uh, against the Vietnam war and for which George wins the Pulitzer prize. Uh, And it's a kind of massive moment for this uh, release of heavily politically engaged poetry, but also a moment in which many of the other objectivists who had been writing in the 1930s with him, Louis Zukofsky, Carl Rakosi, begin writing again, begin publishing again, become kind of public figures again, and in doing so, are recovered as these figures of incredibly principled, politically engaged uh, Mm -hmm. leftist poets recovered from the 1930s into the sort of protest movement that was sweeping the United States in the 1960s. Um, Shortly thereafter, George begins to show symptoms of what would eventually be diagnosed as Alzheimer's in 1978, but um, he's he's showing symptoms well beforehand. And um, the latter part of his career, uh, after of being numerous, is is marked, I think, by um, a return to some of the the jarring syntax and sort of mm. spare 
presentations that his earliest poetry were marked by, but uh, at this point, um, very much engaged with the experience of his uh, his illness um, before mm-hmm. he eventually passes away in 1984. But... Yeah, well, that's um, I mean, God, what a fascinating biography you've you've just um, summarized for us. Um, so, t- two things um, stand out to me in sort of in in preparation for the conversation we're about to have about this poem, um, ballad one is I've always, I mean, I had, I had always, I mean, as long as I've known about Oppen, I've heard the story of the, the silence or whatever, and, and, and have understood it to be, um, related to, and in some sense, a product of his political convictions. um, uh, the 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 story you tell of his um, sort of coming to the realization that you know the the politics he wanted to pursue um, weren't compatible with the the aesthetics that he felt committed to um, is a fascinating one and and I guess you know what is the thought the the, the thought is something like. Well, for one thing, I can imagine other poets coming to something like that realization and sort of ditching the politics, you know. <laughs> um, and and so there's so that's not what Oppen does, and that's obviously there, that can that sounds kind of heroic, you know. And I think Oppen sort of plays that role, in, in to, to the extent that you know poets now care about him, often that 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 heroism has something to do with it that kind of um political conviction but there's something even sort of weirder to me about it which is that for for all we know it's not that it's not simply that Oppen said well okay i guess i'm going to stop publishing this these poems which don't reflect well on the cause or aren't received well by my compatriots in the cause or so, so forth it's that it genuinely seems, have I got it right, David, that by all accounts, like he stopped writing. I mean, the, the poems that Lucas has, has discovered, notwithstanding, um, th- th- there's something, I don't know, sort of more mysterious to me about the silence than, than simply a kind of pragmatic decision that the poems weren't going to find the, the right venues or that they were going to be politically disadvantageous or embarrassing or something there, there's something more kind of pure about the decision than that yeah I, I don't think it's the sort like so his his first book 1934 is published with a preface by Ezra Pound and gets a glowing review by William Carlos Williams in poetry so like could not be under the aegis of influential admired acclaimed poets more but it, I don't think it's it's the sort of like as a neurotic millennial, there's a part of me that is like, well, if I can't do something excellently, I'm not going to do it. I don't think it's that. <laughs> I, oh, you don't think it's just that he's being precious. I did such a great job on my first book. I have second book anxiety yeah, or I something. I don't think that that's what it is. Right. I also I don't think so feel um, that it, I should say this: the conditions of their abrupt departure to Mexico were so sudden that I don't think that they took any papers with them. So I, I don't really know. It's very difficult to know what, if anything, he wrote prior to the return to the United States. Right. I don't think that he had a strong sense 
that he was living the kind of life that was going to be recorded in history. And in fact, one of the sort of vexing things about working on Oppen, because he basically didn't save anything, um, his side of correspondences is pretty widely available because that's what people archive. You know, if, if I were to send you a letter, that would be right. in your papers, not mine. But he right. didn't really keep what other people sent to him. So it's it's hard for me to feel totally definitive about that. At the same right. time, it does seem more or less like that's the case. Right. The nature of the correspondence that that Lucas uncovered with Westminster Review really does suggest that he kind of like decided, well, if there isn't a world for this, uh, I don't know what to do. And yeah. And if I can borrow for a second a kind of a reframing move that I think that Peter Nichols makes around the book of being numerous that I think is really useful is that it's a transition away from that things are to what they are and, and how it feels to live within history in a kind of serious way. I think that there is a kind of um, a historicism or not a historicism, but an interest in language and experience outside of the immediate conditions of history that, that marks 1930s objectivism. And, yeah. and I do think that there's something kind of, I'm doing a hand gesture that none of you mm-hmm. can see, but mm-hmm. my hands are kind of snaking towards each other with increasing mm-hmm. proximity <laughs> between his worldview and what was actually happening in the world as they sort of existed that mm-hmm. created the conditions in which he felt like, oh, hey, actually the art that I really care about does seem like it has a place in the world now. And and this brings me to the second point, which is that in the in the story that you so um touchingly tell, it's his daughter and it's and it's his daughter encountering his poetry in class and then his desire have I am I am I am I sort of drawing the correct conclusion from the letter or the the inference that you draw david from the letter to to linda his desire to demonstrate to his daughter that that actually maybe he hasn't changed that much yeah that, that well, his poetry is not so different from what it once was it's a really like porous expression but what he says is you say if i wrote poetry now horrified to reveal that it's not so different it's almost as though this is the kind of instigation the catalytic moment that he needs to start writing poetry again and find actually it's not so different here i am again feel about language as art and the kind of music that is baked inside of ideas as we express them it's still there for me in a surprisingly familiar way yeah so this 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 idea that you could go 20 years whatever silent yeah and and return and and sort of pick up the phone again or whatever and it would be the same it would be the same sound on the other end something you know there's something actually kind of magical about that right it's you know i think you could either find yourself as a 50 year old man who has seen war has seen the world who has uh, seen what human beings can do to each other and the absolute worst and the absolute best that they're capable of. And you find yourself wanting to say the same things that you wanted to say when you were in your mid twenties, not as, uh, <laughs> if I were to have that moment of realization, I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm, what a boring person I am. But for George, no, it was that <laughs> this is, this is something that does need to be said that the, yeah the, the need for this to be in the world continues to exist in a way that has to be answered. 
Right. I mean, I get the I get the uh, the the worry that it would be a signal that you were a boring person, <laughs> but but I think the other signal that it might offer is one that like, oh, that stuff before it was real. You know, yeah. it wasn't. You know, um, because here there, it is again. You there's know? something and, kind and, of and and the oracular. self is real. Yeah. 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 There's there's a sense that he was in touch with something that demanded expression that was not receiving expression, and that urgency was surprisingly durable. Yeah, that's lovely. That's a that's a that's that's a really lovely way to put it. Okay, so so I'm just looking at the clock, David, and, and we got <laughs> we 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 got to get to the poem. So just to remind listeners, the poem is called Ballad. It 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 is the last poem in of being numerous, and in terms of the narrative that David has been um, laying out for you. Remember, so this is a poem then that he would write, let's say, a decade or so after the return to the U.S., after the return to writing poetry. Um, the re- we have a recording. There, in fact, there are several. There are a handful of recordings of Oppen reading the poem that um, are easily available through the good graces and and good offices of the Pen Sound Archive, and I'll I'll link to that as well. The the particular recording that we're going to listen to is from a, a another decade or so on from the late seventies. Um, so you, I think you'll hear the age in Oppen's voice, but um, it's an, I think it's quite an interesting recording nonetheless. There are there are a couple of recordings that are closer to the composition of the poem that you can also listen to on the Pen Sound Archive. You may need to adjust your volume. I don't know. We'll see how this comes out on the back end to hear the recording well. But this is George Oppen reading the poem Ballad. Ballad. Astrolobes and lexicons once in the great houses, a poor lobsterman met by chance on Swan's Island where he was born. We saw the old farmhouse propped and leaning on its hilltop on that island where the ferry runs, a poor lobsterman, his teeth were bad. He drove us over that island in an old car, a well-spoken man, hardly real as he knew in those rough fields. Lobster pots in their gear, smelling of salt. The rocks outlived the classicists, the rocks in the lobstermen's huts, and the sights of the island, the ledges in the rough sea seen from the road, and the harbor, and the post office. Difficult to know what one means, to be serious and to know what one means. An island has a public quality, his wife in the front seat, in a front dress, in a soft dress such as poor women wear. She took it that we came. I don't know how to say, she said. Not for anything we did, she said mildly. From God, she said, what I like more than anything is to visit other islands. So that's George Oppen um, reading the poem Ballad. Uh, David, um, sort of... Two questions. I don't know if they're related to each other or not in the end, but you know, I'm always interested in hearing guests um, share with our listeners what thoughts go through their mind as they listen. When we have the good fortune of having a recording to play, what thoughts go through their mind as they listen to the voice of the poet, you know, about whom they care so much. Um, so, you know, a question about what thoughts do you have about Oppen's voice as you hear it again today? I know you've heard it before. Um, 
actually, let me just pause there and, and let you answer that question before I get on to the next. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, the, the first thought is, man, I love him. <laughs> He's just has such a wonderful voice. And the, um, the kind of rhythmic peak and shallowing of intensity, you know, I, it feels a little too cute to say that it feels tidal or that there's something like the waves hitting the shore about the way that he delivers the poem, but it's not stressed in the way that like received speech feels like it is necessarily stressed. It's stressed in this kind of metronomic way um, right. that I find really, uh, you know, it, it, it's in this, right? I feel attuned to it as he's reading, if that makes what sense. What was the word you said? The, like, this is, I'm using sort of, Open vernacular, but the Heidegger term Stimmung, right? Attunement, yeah. how it feels to be kind of find yourself calibrated towards and together. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, good. Right. Uh, what do because you think? On, well, yeah, no. So, well, who cares? About You've it? heard this before, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there's something kind of peculiar about the way Oppen reads, and I, and I I asked you because I'm genuinely curious, and I've had a hard time putting my finger on it myself. But and what you've just said helps, because on because on the one hand, it does not sound. I mean, you if you play the recording, I think you would you would know better than to think it was prose or just somebody talking to you. It sounds different, and yet it it's surprising to me because it doesn't sound like a a poetry reading either Re- exactly <laughs> it i mean he's he's doing something which i think i understand i can explain as poetic in his, I, I mean clearly obviously in the poem but i in the text but i mean in in his in his performance of it um and it has something i think to do with rhythm and something to do with the, I get the sense that he's sort of like, um, it's like he's got all the words on the page and he's sort of picking them up and putting them down like a child playing with blocks or something <laughs> like he's like, it. it's, it's, um, it's playful. It's not necessarily um, overly concerned with fidelity to idiomatic expression or to, you know, to use the, the pounds, um, uh, phrase in the imagist um, in the you know in his imagist statement uh, the um, the musicality of the phrase uh, much less of course like the the regularity of the metronome I mean it's not any of that it's something else again which is like um, it it I I hear it at line breaks I hear it in his enjambments I hear it. Um, particularly in the phrases i think i'm sure we'll come to this um the the she saids that get repeated at the end of the poem um which remind me in a way of in the poem that we talked about um in the intro the the poem that you told me i'm so happy for this gift is about the first date between george and linda oppen um which i think is one of the most beautiful love poems i know a poem called the forms of love in in that poem in the recordings I've heard of up and reading it, I hear it in his in the repetition of the phrase I remember. Um, there's a he's sort of he's punctuating the poem in his reading of it. And um and doing so not 
in in a kind of straightforwardly grammatical sense, but in some other kind of way, which feels more mysterious to me, um, and makes of the poem a kind of object. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, you know. I'm nodding vigorously. <laughs> okay, good, good. My um, my my other question for you was going to be about the title of the poem. So the poem is called Ballad, which you know, I I guess what I, I guess the the question for you is 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 can you tell david um the listeners of the podcast um what do people normally mean by ballad in in poetry and <laughs> and what do you make of the fact that this poem is called that notwithstanding um what people normally mean when they say ballad yeah i i think um quite often and i you know i appreciate it in the intro your nod towards my kind of vicarious i don't know i i care about historical poetics but i also as a modernist am like precisely in the period that historical poetics seems disinterested in or kind of mad at (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) but but there is a a magnificent essay i think is sort of the paradigmatic work of historical poetics is meredith mcgill's essay what is a ballad and mcgill is interested in where and how this term emerges kind of in, in two places, one in the kind of folk tradition, uh, a primarily oral and then recorded tradition that typically uh, is, is narrative. It's typically kind of in media res. And typically, I think, as a sort of mnemonic rhythm, um, cooperates to the sort of 14er um, structure or the, the, the meter, in fact, um, that I think most of us are familiar with is hymn meter, however, is more often rhymed like A-B-A-B rather than A-B-C-B. There is also, through the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, I think actually it really begins in the 16th, but kind of comes to a kind of commodified Mm -hmm. head in the 19th century, a tradition of uh, sort of broadside ballads, um, poems that are written to narrativize particular moments and events that are imagined as sort of artifacts to be read and sort of circulated as such. but this is neither, <laughs> right? Right, right. And um, instead, this is something kind of infelicitous that seems like it might be teasing one or both of those traditions. Uh, certainly, there's a kind of aura of folk life in the poem, but it's not rhymed. Um, I guess right. it's narrative, but the story right. is... Uh, not much of a story. S- certainly not. Um, there's very little daring do <laughs> <laughs> right. in the right. story. Um but the ballad is also, and I think this is this is a wonderful sort of point that that McGill makes in that essay. Um, she uses the term paraliterary that she borrows mm. from Samuel Delaney, who coins it to talk about both science fiction and literary criticism as work that is heavily engaged with what we sort of traditionally think of as capital L literature, but that exists right on the margins and in fact sometimes and in some ways exists to kind of delimit or, or to announce the boundaries of what is and is not literary. Um, right. And for McGill, that is also true of Ballad's relationship to capital P poetry, um, right. where the ballad is primarily to be understood as a sort of folk form without the new critical uh, assumptions of, let's say, density, complexity, and genius, um, if that makes right. sense. Right. Um, do we... It's probably also worth mentioning that this is the third poem that Oppen writes that kind of takes a, an infelicitous title out of poetic history as well. 
Um, the first one is Eklog in his book, The Materials in 1962. Um, it's, it's a sort of odd poem that seems to be about a frustration with what people are and are not concerned with. Um, and then the second from his book, This in Which, is Psalm. And mm. Psalm tends to be, I think, the poem that contains the lines of Offens that are the most frequently quoted. Um, it ends, the small nouns crying faith in this in which the wild deer startle and stare out. Um, so in those lines, yeah. you get the title of that book, This in Which, but it's the small nouns crying faith that tends to be what people gravitate towards. And when asked, often said, well, it's, it's the faith that there is something. It's the faith that mm-hmm. the word means, that it points to the world, that it doesn't just exist on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all three cases, I think Oppen is interested in a long genre history of poetry and what it means for the moment that he's living in the world and encountering the people and problems that he sees in front of them. And mm-hmm. him, sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so ballad the poem might not feel immediately recognizable as a ballad in this in in a way that's analogous to the ways in which eclogue might not seem rec- immediately recognizable as an eclogue or psalm immediately recognizable as a psalm totally he's interested in those categories he's not dismissive of them but he's um what in um <laughs> I, I think borrowing in... from reimagining yeah Say more. I, I think he takes very seriously the conviction behind uh any poetic utterance sort of through history I, I think he believes very strongly that you have to believe in what you're saying in order to do it um which i don't know that i believe but uh, i think george does uh mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think it, it is about trying to find your way into why what are received as genre conventions might have felt urgent and necessary as opposed to simply gestures that you're expected to make. That said, right. Right. <laughs> sorry for right. yelling. That's okay. I also think, and this is sorry to bring into the podcast, a kind of classroom trick, but I think I, I often love to ask students to think about the relation of a title to the rest of the poem and, and what it's doing. Right. Is it, yeah. is it this sort of, um, uh, is it cueing us into a, a setting or a condition or, or, or a kind of key to open something up? Or is, is it acting as a, a first line? And I, I do think that this is a poem that actually offers the title as a, a way into the first line as well. I think that there's something to be said for the way that ballad as this historical folk form that gets recovered uh, and anthologized says something to the astrolabes and the lexicons as well. Say, say more about yeah okay so it's a it's a really peculiar first line um astrolabes man that's <laughs> what what a what a first word to lay down as a poet uh, absolutely I, i'm i'm guessing that that many of the listeners don't even know what an astrolabe is so it's it's a um a, a kind of um a now i take it obsolete um, oh yeah navigational device that one would have used to um, navigate by means of measuring the the stars, right? And, exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. It, it's right. um, displaced by the compass. 
um, which by giving to say uh, nothing of GPS, <laughs> right? Yeah, or, or you know, calling yeah. somebody for help. <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> yeah, there's no triple A for you know people sailing across the Atlantic in the 16th century. Um, okay, but yeah, so so I, I do. And think then a lexicon this, is a collection of words, right? Like exactly, a, a, a collection yeah. of yeah, and I think um, typically a collection of words that has a particular. Um, point of reference, whether that's geographic, whether that's historic, whether it's professional. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I often feel like I end up apologizing for how much I uh, deploy a literary critical lexicon in um, right. inappropriate settings. You know, <laughs> nobody right. wants to hear about metalepsis when you're watching a basketball game. Um, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. So, right. So, so, so that would be a way to think of lexicon as like a, a maybe a jargon that's associated with a particular kind of discursive field or but also as a collection right and i I think that that there's something about this group of three terms ballad astrolabes and lexicons that Mm -hmm. all feel as though they are tools who have transitioned from uh immediate everyday kind of utility into affectations even more than commodities at the very least that is how i read that transition into the the second line of the poem once in the great houses right this is not astrolabes and lexicons boy sure it was fun to use them in the world this is astrolabes and lexicons as they existed on your mantelpiece on Uh uh, your desk as they had become curios and and maybe ballads are like astrolabes and lexicons in that sense like if you're a poet like oppen you you have you you read ballads, yeah, or you have them in your collection. You probably but they, they feel like markers of something rather than things to be used in their original sense. Yeah, even like I don't want to say that it's probably where you first encounter a ballad because ballads still exist. People still sing them. People mm. sing them to their children. People sing them on the radio. Um, which is actually mm-hmm. maybe radios belong with astrolabes and lexicons. Maybe. But probably the first time that you have encountered a collection of ballads, it was as a sort of folkloric anthology project rather than mm-hmm. um, as a collection of... I, th- I think as soon as something is collected, it probably doesn't feel like it's... you know, like. Do you think of your the tools in your toolbox as a collection of tools? No, you think of them no. as your tools, right? Right, right, right. Right, a collection is a kind of repurposing of the object. Yeah, as Cameron is looking a, over my a, shoulder. A revaluing of it in a way. Yeah, yeah. sorry. I would say that these these issues of Paiduma over my shoulder—that's a collection. Because that's right. I, if I need something from Paiduma, I'm going to go on JSTOR and figure it out. Um, but right. the rest of it, I don't know that I would call a collection. You know. <laughs> right, right, right. No, absolutely. That that's that's beautifully said. And so, what does it mean to think of the of the poetic? form in that sense that having said that i mean you 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 did um i think gesture um earlier towards the very real way in which this poem though it's not in the quatrains and and um and it's and it's perhaps not narrative in the way we'd expect the ballad to be it it does seem to be interested in i think what you called folk life and and i think we get you know, in the third line of the poem, a poor lobsterman um, met by chance on Swan's Island. And that figure seems to me as I, as I sort of, you know, 
as I read the poem in preparation for this conversation, uh, the, 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 the thought that went immediately through my mind, and maybe this is a, a kind of um, tipping of the, the hand of my own education in poetry was like, oh, this is like a, this is like one of those characters that Wordsworth meets when he's out for a walk. This is like the leech gatherer or something like that. And, totally. and maybe it's a ballad in that <clears throat> sense. It's like a, a lyrical ballad or, or, or something. Um, so yeah, so t- talk t- about that figure as he appears, <laughs> a poor lobsterman, David. Absolutely. Um, met by chance on Swan's Island where he was born. Um, yeah, there is a sense, I think, of um, belonging and estrangement, right? That that so mm. probably it, it helps to give a little bit of background to. No, no, no. I've given you loads of background. Let's talk about this as it erupts in the poem. I think yeah. we immediately get the sort of abrupt sense that the poor lobsterman is not in the great houses. That right, whatever the lobsterman is up to, it is probably not collecting outdated navigation technology um but is almost certainly navigation is a part of his life because we come to know him and meet him as someone who makes his living from the ocean from the water uh Mm -hmm. and it's a pretty tough one um poor is you know i I take here as being probably more economic than um emotional right right? i don't think this is the woebegone lobsterman i think that this is like the lobsterman the who's scratching his lobsterman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. And there's and and for people who aren't looking, there's a real break between. I mean, g- grammatically, the the beginning of the poem is odd. It 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 to me seems oppen like in um and and maybe not odd in that sense, but it, in that it's sort of um. The poem begins with two lines that sound like they begin a sentence, but then the sentence gets sort of broken off by a dash at the end of the second line, which is the end of the first stanza. And the, a poor lobsterman is, a, is the third line of the poem, the second stanza of the poem, all on its own, just one line. So there's a real kind of feeling of, I think, disjunction between the that in those initial two lines and the sudden eruption, as you put it, of this character in the third line. Yeah, and, and thinking about it, looking at it now, and, and maybe this is, I don't, I don't know how this corresponds to the Wordsworthian gesture, but I do get the sense that um, Oppen is interested in how it is that that these things came to be once in the great houses, but the lobsterman's not. That we admit into our homes things throughout history, objects, commodities, but don't always admit people. Um, what that mm. kind of abrupt distance between hospitality uh, means here. And then yet the lobsterman is in, a, I think, a really real sense hosting uh, often. I, I, I should probably totally right. put my cards on the table and say that um, <clears throat> I'm going to totally dispense with the lyric or like the convention of the speaker of the poem. I right. think that there's, there's way too much from George and Mary's life here um, for the, poem to be a kind of persona or uh, anything else. I, I think that this is very much George Oppen writing as George Oppen. Um, and that this is an encounter met by chance on Swan's Island. He's, he's from the place where they have arrived at. Um, there is this sense of right. their dislocation as well as in the kind of broader sweep of material history, his dislocation, the lobsterman's dislocation from that. George and Mary are tourists and the lobsterman is at home. Yeah. That's yeah. The idea. And, and it's, um, so they had a, a, 
a place on Deer Island in Maine, in Penobscot Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fairly sure they came to Maine as a result of Linda being um, in Saratoga, or they they're sort of fell in love with the Northeast. But there's a moment where George talks about how Maine feels to him the way that New Rochelle in the Bronx, where he was originally born and spent the first 10 years of his life, felt to him in the first decade of the 20th century. And so in an odd way, even though Maine seems pretty far from the Bronx today, this felt yeah. like a sort of homecoming to him. And they had a very small boat that they would use to sail from island to island. But the nature of um, the sort of weather systems on Penobscot Bay are such that they would very often be kind of shut in by fog and have to dock and wait, um, sort of wait out until conditions um, lessened to the point that it was safe to sail again. Um, and um, this feels, yeah, that they're, they're sort of arriving here. Um, in, a, yeah. in an essay, Mary Oppen, titled Remain, R-E colon M-A-I-N-E, talks about how this felt a little bit like science fiction. That even though, you know, these are all these islands in Maine, when they got trapped in a place by fog, it would suddenly feel like they had landed on another planet. And so I think that there is yeah. that that sense of estrangement, alienation, the interest in trying to make sense of each other across the differences uh, in their lives. Um, I think that that's happening uh, almost right away, that we need that sort of nomic strange opening and the it's not even quite an M dash. It's like a double M dash <laughs> until we get the lobsterman to have that sense of estrangement. Oh yeah. That, that, no, that's, that's lovely. And, and I mean the, the idea of what an Island is, um, is going to return as a, as a crucial one by the, by the end of the poem. But I love this idea of the, um, of the islands, or, or you know what you said about Mary sort of thinking of it almost as a kind of science fiction of the island as almost a um, each island as its own world somehow, um, which of course also raises um, questions perhaps uh, or, or 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 the idea of the island as a kind of figuration of the self as a um, you know I think of the the John Dunline no man. Is, is an island um, of of the, the the idea that the um, the self is at, one is tempted at least potentially to take the self as a kind of um, entire and enclosed and circumscribed um, kind of terrain, um, which seems I don't know. Uh, a temptation, but 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 a kind of misreading of the of the um, of the geography of the poem. Yeah, and I think also is a, a temptation that the younger George Oppen was um, really interested in and engaged with. I think you know one of the lines of the long poem of being numerous that people often sort of pluck out is the shipwreck of the singular, um, right. and this this continues and I think amends even responds to the sailing motifs that saturate all of his writing. You know, he's a really committed sailor, um, really good at it, really loved it, kind of felt at home on the water. And that early collection, um, Discrete Series, is, is filled with these sort of short poems that take as moments of uh, disjuncture h- how it feels to be on the water. Um, one of my favorites, it's really, really short. Can I, can I read a six lines for you? <laughs> you, you can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, this is uh, towards the end of the collection. 
uh, untitled. Uh, it says, on the water, solid, the singleness of a toy, a tug with two barges. Oh, what, oh, what will bring us back to shore, the shore, coiling a rope on the steel deck. So this this idea of, of separation, these sort of distances, inertia, right. movement, current, the way that they carry us, but they carry us away. They carry us apart. Um, and uh-huh. But he returns, when he returns to writing, all of this sort of, I almost want to say iconography, because at the very least to me, this is, it's, it's so sort of significant for his poetic lexicon. But at this point now, suddenly it's, it's troubled, right? These, these distinctions, these moments become actually opportunities for connection rather than reminders of, of some sort of um, incompleteness or insufficiency. Hmm. Hmm. Um, no, that's, that, that, that's great. Um, can I, can I push us right to the, the push one us. that I have no idea what to do. Yeah. Push uh, right uh, off our moorings to met by chance on Swan, Swan's Island where he was born. We saw the old farmhouse propped and leaning on its hilltop. The sense yeah. that the poor lobsterman also dwells within comes from maybe he was even born in this mm-hmm. farmhouse that has been in a state of like slight collapse for right. goodness knows how long. Right. What, how does, how does it feel to encounter this propped and leaning farmhouse after these great houses? Well, I mean, uh, sorry, are you asking me? <laughs> I am. Well, I, 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 maybe I'm asking the listener, you know, leave a five star review and yeah, right, right yeah. now. Um, um, I mean, it, it raises a couple of things for me. One is, I mean, there's the, there's the clear kind of feeling, and maybe this part of it feels sort of consistent with what I was saying earlier about like the the Wordsworthian sort of vibe here of the you know the the lobsterman as the kind of rustic figure whose very existence contrasts with the the kind of sophistication of the world that is that exists on the kind of periphery of it that we take it the poem is written in and read in you know Mm -hmm. um and and that the that the the kind of that figure of um uh that that kind of rustic figure is supplies is sort of um i I'm, i'm giving this the most kind of cynical reading possible but um it is sort of like mined or extracted for its life-giving vitality and 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 gives the poem something of the kind of feeling of like real life which is the thing that poems you know need in the way vampires need the blood of <laughs> young <laughs> young healthy living people or something yeah i mean, I, th- I think yeah. this is like almost exactly what annoys um some of my peers about often because he is right. you know he is living on this trust fund into his 50s and 60s and uh, you know, there's this moment where he's meeting this person and is having this sort of encounter, this experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who's <laughs> the idea of having spent your entire life living in a house that is constantly on the verge of falling down feels almost theatrically distinct from somebody who grew up. Uh, you know, his father owned the first chain of theaters in the San Francisco area. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. this was, you know, when I showed my wife. 
the poem that I was thinking about talking to you about, she she read it. She's like, oh, what an asshole. <laughs> uh-huh. This this rich poet shows up and he's like, oh, great. Uh, a, a poor person. Can I can I throw you into my poem? I, I don't know. Right. If, I don't know if you've ever um, watched the show 30 Rock, but there's a moment where the Tracy Morgan character says to a, a janitorial staff member, oh, can I please touch your rough hands? Um, right, right, but this was, right. This was, you know. A, and, and here it comes back. A poor lobsterman comes back. And then yes. and then the next line, his teeth were bad, right? As, yeah. As a kind of, that's the detail you need to know about him. Totally. Yeah. Can you, can you give this guy a break, please? Um, you don't need his name. You need to know that his teeth were bad. His right? teeth were yeah. bad. And it's, um, but I should say, the ethics of a jester like this were something that were really um, important to Oppen and that he took very seriously. And so um, in a later interview, when asked about this poem and about this moment specifically, he said, you know, the first person I showed the poem to was the lobsterman because I wanted to make mm-hmm. sure that he was okay with me doing this, that he, he didn't, mm-hmm. you know, that this didn't feel like an unfair characterization, that this didn't feel cruel. Um, and the lobsterman said, no, 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 this is, this is, what happened? This is as it existed. He didn't have any issues with it. Um, mm-hmm. And in a strange moment, poor Lobster and Seether Bad, he drove us over that island in an old car, a well-spoken man, but we don't get any of his speech. Right. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't, um, what, what you might expect is about to happen is that he's, he's about to tell you, let me tell you about my, childhood yeah. and then it comes in sort of reported speech or something like that and it's a moving story and the poet goes home kind of moved by yeah. what he's heard and and so on um no that doesn't happen <laughs> it, it, this is this feels related to me in a way to the the line that you were asking me about earlier the farmhouse propped and leaning on its hilltop which on the one hand right i think the idea is like well this is the place he's from there's a kind of sort of grounding or sort of solidity to it but it also feels kind of precarious and um provisional in in like like it's it's sort of teetering on the edge of collapse or something i i get the same kind of paradox in he drove us over that island in an old car a well-spoken man hardly real yeah um there there's um there's on the one hand he seems like, um, right, the gesture feels familiar and perhaps this is the thing that would annoy the, the, the friends or your wife or whatever, the, the, the kind of, he, oh, I know who this character is. He's like the salt of the earth, real, real person. Yeah, whose rough hands we want to feel so that Literally we can say we felt his rough hands. smelling of salt we get in a couple lines. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Uh, on the other hand, he's a kind of he's 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 from the place he's from. What's it called? Swan's yeah. Island. It it sounds yeah. like a it sounds like a fairy tale kind of location. And he himself is hardly real. Is I don't, I don't know if that makes it better or worse in a way the, the the ethics of it, but it makes him seem sort of magical to me. Yeah, even you know like uh, uh, to to offer a heretical paraphrase, you know, you could call. This farm at the falling down house, right? Like it, like suddenly sounds yeah. like we're in like board book territory or something like that. Right. right. The yeah. lobsterman in his falling down house feels like something that you might read to a niece or a nephew. Um, right. And then, but and I think you know, annoying to talk about line breaks uh, in an auditory medium in which you're. Your it's crucial. Is- we do it in every episode, David. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. But it is you know as as we're talking through it. I, I, I can't help but notice, first of all, that like quite often lines that seem like they they follow 
syntactically relatively comfortably from previous lines are very often interrupted by stanza breaks. And this is a poem that, you know, if the ballads form, one of the ways that we know it is in these sort of quatrains. This is a poem that never gives us a four-line stanza. There's no risk of a quatrain on the page. But we get this abrupt shift from hardly real as he knew in those rough fields, lobster pots in their gear, smelling of salt, the rocks outlived the classicists, the rocks and the lobstermen's huts. So, So whatever state of, you know, proximity to collapse this farmhouse exists in, it and the rocks are outliving the classicists. There is, right. there is some sense of permanency or dur- durability. I think permanent feels like the wrong word for this poem, but mm. durable. There is something durable about what is happening here that is, I think, hard to narrativize, but feels um, immediate and true. Yeah. What does it mean for a rock to outlive anything? <laughs> yeah. How, how much life is a rock really having? um you know i I think that there's probably uh, is is there is there david sorry to interrupt you but is there i mean you raised it earlier and i remember we talked at at the beginning of this conversation um uh, for for a moment or two about what imagism meant and and your contention was you know not contention your um very helpful um summary of the literary history was that you know Appen belongs to this this group of this development in poetics that's related to imagism, but a kind of departure development of it called objectivism. We never really stopped to say really what sort of the object as unit kind of um, meant to the objectivists. Um, not again, not the Ayn Rand kind, but the <laughs> <laughs> the George Oppen kind. Um, does, is this a moment to say something about that? Is that, do th- I mean, I realize we're quite, we're we're half a century later, or nearly, or or decades later from from the hate, or maybe, but the twenty or thirty years is still later. Real yeah. for him, right? And I, yeah. I think, so say know, something maybe, about it. Yeah, I, I think maybe a succinct way of um, thinking into the problem that the objectivist poets were interested in, uh, if if I can make a kind of intermedial gesture, we might think about how you know if we want to represent like a cube on the page and we can draw the lines and we can uh, uh, sort of mm-hmm. affect the sensation of depth, but we are also only presenting three of six sides, right? And I think the objectivists were interested in how to reform language to give the sensation of the apprehension of all six sides at once. What it means Mm. to take in the totality of the thing in such a way that acknowledges that the limits of our perceptual capacities render that perspective impossible. Um, so, so, so where and mm-hmm. how we have to manipulate language in order to make both the pursuit of that and its impossibility um, real and live. Um, but also, you know, let's not totally take off the table the idea that and this sort of vexing problem that if, if George is thinking about Henry James as being a, an important kind of literary yeah. aesthetic precedent, right. when we talk about writing objectively, we're not really talking about like something that feels saturated in emotional expression either, right? right? That that what the poem is interested in drawing out and presenting for the reader exists within and needs to be excavated rather than being imposed upon or or um even let's say like yeah emotionally narrativized. They're they're not telling stories, I think is a, a probably a pretty mm-hmm. succinct um accounting of objectivist poetics. 
uh, and they are also interested in where and how those problems were, I think, transhistorical in a way that the later George is not. Um, in fact, you know, I, I said near the beginning of the episode that he has this kind of one prose statement that is often returned to by critics. But in fact, in the poem of being numerous, section 27 begins, it is difficult now to speak of poetry. It is not precisely a question of profundity, but a different order of experience. And this is not um, lineated in the way that his poetry typically is. It's written as prose. Right. Uh, it is pr- not precisely a question of profundity, but a different order of experience. One would have to tell what happens in a life, what choices present themselves, what the world is for us, what happens in time, what thought is in the course of a life, and therefore what art is, and the isolation of the actual. I think objectivism was really interested in that isolation of the actual, but as George comes back to it and is interested in what those aesthetic techniques can do, it is now with what the world is for us, what happens in time, what thought is. That that layer of the individual understanding themselves to be working, thinking, processing. Um, and so I think, you know, this this abrupt moment, the rocks that live the classicists, the rocks and the lobster in huts, um, I think that there is a, a true way to take that, which is to say that um, if you're a human being, these things that I am seeing and encountering are going to be here after your life in all likelihood. Mm. But I also think that there is a question of what life is, right? What does it mean to live? Um, mm. And I think classicist here is well chosen. Um, certainly uh, we could take this as a critique of academia or of kind of the rarefication of knowledge. But I also think that it's really specifically about this looking backwards, um, Right. Classicists as um, interpreters of a bygone past, as as people of antiquity. who exactly yeah. right um, to to cherish and to transmit, but maybe not to necessarily be present. Um, and I think that that's mm-hmm. probably unfair to the classicists in my life, but <laughs> <laughs> but I think we can see what he's doing there, right? Right. And the lobsterman is um, a presentist or something. Well, the lobsterman at least the structure of this two-line stanza, the lobsterman's huts are like the rocks, um, which yeah. feels a little weird because certainly those are different timescales that we were talking about. But yeah, you're right. It, it does, I think there's a kind of paratactual or paratactic suggestion that the lobsterman too is participating in a kind of uh, active, embodied, lived life in a way that being a classicist is not. There's something also just I don't know if it's if it's a sort of dumb kind of intuitive sense I have that the um at the level of the image or something that the 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 huts the the um the rocks and maybe the lobsterman as like a linguistic creation lobsterman as lobsterman. one word yeah yeah right you know gives one the impression you know it's like um what if the lobstermen were a lobsterman in the way like Spider-Man is Spider-Man, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, it's somehow made into, right. has this kind of hard exterior, you know, this exoskeleton or something. Yeah. Hardly um, real in a literal sense. Yeah. The, right. The way that yeah. he's real is by being hard. By being hard. That's how he's real. That's right. Yeah. And, and there's something, there's a kind of, um, that, that that's, that's the thing that the, 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 the rocks, the 
um, the the huts and the lobstermen have in common is the sort of exoskeleton. Um, yeah, this this kind of uh, rough exterior. This that um, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know um, what more to say about it than that. But it, but and then we're given this sort of tour and the um, and the sights of the island, the ledges in the rough sea seen from the road and the harbor and the post office that that seems like um a kind of easy enough to follow s- sort of tour guide like presentation of what one of what george remembers seeing while taken around um by the lobstermen on on swans island but but then there is there there, there's one of these interjections like like you were maybe talking about earlier that interrupts the the tour mm. to to my reading at least so so and the harbor and the post office that's those are two lines you know each and the harbor one line and the post office another that make up a little couplet and, and then the next stanza goes like this difficult to know what one means line break and then between two m dashes as a line to be serious and to know what one means um so david i i i'd want to know where that interjection fits into the tour of swan you know like why why do we get those lines there and then in the poem um well or, or say anything about no. those lines, which <laughs> no, are, which just, are, I was going to be a little yeah. obnoxious, which is to say that I think that the one thing that those lines I can say for sure do is they let me know that it's difficult to uh, express <laughs> this completely <laughs> and satisfactorily. Um, the way that I always kind of back into this moment is how strange it is to say, to be serious and to know what one means in part, because I don't know about you, but I don't really think of humor as being part of George's poetic toolkit. Um, yeah, I, I keep saying his first name, and I feel like I should be more scholarly about this. But I just feel like I know him so well. But um, sure, then we're still, disting- you're distinguishing him from Mary too, right? Oh, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but he's not funny as a poet, is my sense. So, so you're I, taking you're taking the implied um, uh, alternative to being serious, being funny. Well, right. I suppose it could be frivolous, or to be superfluous, or to be yeah. Um, uh, to be, you know, Wildian or something like that. But these these all feel like um, registers that he's not necessarily o- interested in occupying. I suppose they should say, I am taking as a given that we should read across that M dash that difficult is still applying, right? Difficult yes. to know what one means, to be serious and to know what one means. And in a poem as sort of jagged as this one is, I, I suppose that that in and of itself is a, a claim that probably needs to be at least acknowledged, if not necessarily sure. substantiated, but difficult to know what one means. Um, that feels almost idiomatic in ways that other parts of the poem are not right. Difficult uh-huh. to know what one means. Yeah. I think I probably know what that refers to um, the way that um, I think, first of all, you know, language is unruly and can be uncooperative. And, right. you know, we don't necessarily, you don't need Bakhtin to know that you can say something and have it be received differently by someone else, right? Um, that yeah. what happens between people 
can be unpredictable and can often be um, frustrating. <laughs> um, but it, knowing what you mean does seem to be the goal here, right? Well, I want to I want to stop and just ask in Ooh. in a more basic sense what that line. Because it seems to me that line could mean a couple of different things that just take the difficult to know what one means line. Mm. Like on the one hand, I I think it could mean something like it's hard to understand each other. Right. Right. It So in, in that sense, like the one could be like some other person. You right. Know? When one is speaking to someone else, it is difficult to know what one means, what mm. that other one has meant, in other words. Yeah. But but it also seems, and, and actually the first way I read it was not that way, but was to read it in some sort of, I guess, stranger or more private sense that like before one, ev- you know, so, okay, f- cards on the table moment, right? The, the the echo I heard as soon as I read the line was of of the the line in in the love song of Jail for Proofrock T S Eliot's love song of Jail for Proofrock it is impossible to say just what I mean right that right. moment of frustration that that mm. that Proofrock has like he wants to say what he means but he can't quite say what he means right. and um, because of languages insufficiencies or his own um, sort of special ineffability or whatever right mm-hmm. here what I was hearing in the line is a kind of problem that is in some sense prior to that problem. Like Proofrock's problem presumes that you, David, before you speak, you know what you mean. It's just hard to say it. It's hard to express it accurately. Right. Or that the conditions are such that I can't say it now. Um, Yeah, right. Sure. But the but the 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 problem that I'm describing as as potentially at least being prior to that would be the the problem of like the problem is not that the problem is that I don't know what I mean even before I've tried to say it. So do you right? Do you like I not, I don't know my own mind in a way right, right right? And so do you do you then read that metapoetically to take? And the sights of the island, the ledges in the rough sea seen from the road, and the harbor right. and the post office, difficult to know what one means. To be Like, why am I saying these things? Yeah, the poem almost yeah. talking to itself and saying, these feel like things that had to be in this poem, but I don't know why. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult. What are these doing here, right? I know what they were doing there on Swan's Island in the world, but what are they doing here on the page, in my mouth, in my voice? That's in great. The poem. Yeah. There's this serious, moment I love. Yeah. The, well, oh, just yeah, to, sorry, to be serious on, yeah. and to know what one means, I think if we take the problem of the prior line seriously, sorry, ugh, just tautology. <laughs> um, but if we take the prior line to be sincere, I think we are invited to understand that the poem is being serious and that part of the problem of meaning, part of the problem of interpretation yeah. that is both intersubjective but also reflective and almost meditational is that difficulty is to know you know why when i put these words down on the page are these the words from this experience that feel like they need to be here 
Right. If if you were content, so this is why I think the the the, the kind of alternative to being serious isn't being funny, but is actually something more like being frivolous or being right. um, unserious in in a kind of. Um, I don't know if that I'm just predisposed to think this because of what we've said about Oppen's biography, but to be like unserious politically or something, or to be right, or or to you like to go back to that expression about what what it was that modern American poetry was seeking a corrective to, it was the right. idea of exaggeration and inflation. And I right, think right. he takes that economic and rhetorical sort of correspondence or harmony quite seriously. The idea right. that both, one of the problems with poetry was that it is making a lot out of things that are not right. enormous, but are real. And also that um, we're not being true if we're exaggerating. To be, right and to exaggerate us to not be serious that's good right we it would be e- easier to to like if you were content with bullshitting like then you could f- act as though you easily you could act as though you knew what you meant right but right if, but if if you're not content to do that if you're not content to rely on sort of um the kind of thing one means in this setting but if you're committed to saying actually what you mean now, th- I'm nodding, then it becomes difficult. Right. To, but to, to just sort of press on that metapoetic gesture that I think that you've brought yeah. us towards, it does rather suggest that people are quite often, poets are quite often frivolous with and about themselves right. in isolation, in reflection, in recollection. Yeah. Not recollection just, and tranquility, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? It's not just charisma and charm. It's it's actually a kind of um, aesthetically enabled delusion. Yeah, that 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 sort of underwrites and makes possible the 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 sort of sensible poetic utterance or something. Maybe it's maybe you don't have to take twenty five years away from writing poetry if you are comfortable with yourself being frivolous sometimes. <laughs> I guess that's right. Yeah, no, that's what I'm thinking of, right? So, and okay, so then he goes from there to the the poem. Kind of, there's like a I don't know if it were a song, I would say there's a there's a key change or something. Yeah. After that moment, we're going that like, moment's up, a kind of bridge. Yeah, we're going yeah. up a fifth. Yeah. I don't know enough about music to confirm that, but I'll take your <laughs> word for it. Um, an island has a public quality. That's a that's a funny and paradoxical seeming kind of line to me because I would think that if, if an island had any quality, it would be a private quality. <laughs> but, yes. <laughs> um, so so, so explain the paradox or address the paradox, David. Okay. Um, I, I think, you know, within the poem, we could certainly take that public quality to be a gesture to the ferry that runs to Swan's Island. And the idea mm-hmm. that this is an island, however topographically, you know, enclosed by the bay is nevertheless made available by the vehicular affordances of the re- I don't know. Sorry, I, this is annoying professor language, but, but yeah. that you can get to it. This is a public island in the way that Deer Island maybe isn't. But, and this is, I, I think, probably a little contentious, but I can't hear this moment without hearing an Emily Dickinson echo in this moment. Um, uh-huh. uh, and the poem that uh, if, if I can do the sort of uh, inhospitable gesture of calling back to a prior episode of your own podcast <laughs> oh, uh, of uh, your conversation with Johanna Winant. Um, but you know, the poem, I'm nobody, who are you, includes that yeah. great sort of nomic 
kind of funny line, uh, how public like a frog, like a um, frog. Yeah. And I definitely think that that is funny. <laughs> I definitely yeah. think that Emily Dickinson knows what she means. <laughs> and uh-huh. I do think that there is something happening in this moment in the poem where, and maybe it is only because I read that letter at the beginning of, of George writing to Linda and saying, yeah. If Where only my work was more transparent yeah. to you than a Puritan stranger like Emily Dickinson's, but sadly it's not. Um, but I think Dickinson is a really important poetic precedent for him in a way that generally open scholarship doesn't typically acknowledge. Um, right. In that first year poetry class in which he meets his wife, the assigned textbook is Conrad Aiken's Modern American Poets. It's published in 1922. And the only poet who is not alive that is anthologized within that collection is Emily Dickinson and by mm-hmm. far the best represented poet in the book. This yeah. is a book that often keeps with him for his entire life. Um, yeah. And I think that in, in being interested in, you know, as that rocks outlive the classicist moment, this is a poem that is interested. Yeah. In encounter and in, in estrangement in uh, genres as artifacts of history, as we receive and experience them. And it's probably worth mentioning that Emily Dickinson wrote in, him meter, which is also called yeah, the ballad say. form. Right. But is also, I think, a poem that is interested in life and death, right? This is a poem that is interested in how long things last, what it means as long as it lasts. An island seems like something that lives uh, in so far as a rock lives. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know. But partly- is it something about, about the island's island? insularness insularity that's the word right is it something about insularity that produces the public quality which may seem paradoxical but is actually right sort of part of what Oppen is realizing in this moment you mean because it is a space that that moment of encounter that feeling of estrangement that sci-fi feeling yeah right can be shared can be um individuating but also common right uh, I guess so. Something anyone like else that, arriving yeah. on Swan's Island or Swan, yeah, Swan's Island can have the experience of first arriving on Swan's Island. And right. that's a kind of participation in the public. Right. Is that, yeah. does that make sense? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. What do you mean by an island has a public quality? Because I don't know. I think I, you said it better than I could. Yeah. Well, but I, I actually did. I think a kind of annoying thing, which was <laughs> I like uh, I, I like sidestepped into interpoetic history and like metapoetic gesture rather than taking seriously on its face, which is exactly what the poem wants us to do at that exact moment, because it is talking directly to us and saying difficult to know what one means to be serious to know what one means. An island has a public quality. I mean, it is difficult. That is a difficult expression. Yeah. So in a way, the poem is doing exactly what it has prepared us for. Why? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think a key word that you've used a couple of times here is encounter, you know, mm. and, um, you know, it, it, well, of course it's like, common i mean not to stay with dickinson for too long but i think it's a, it's a kind of commonplace to think of her as as a as an insular kind of figure as um as sort of oh inaccurate ultimately or incomplete as that mythical kind of um impression of her might be um but oh, but I there's something this. about the kind of encounter you know, I think of like Higginson's narrative of like having met Dickinson for the first time and what, how strange she seemed to him and so on. Yeah. 
but there's something about the encounter with her that makes him want to like write back to to describe you know right it it, it sort of produces this um this kind of public moment in in, right. a, in a paradoxical way she's also you know i was i was in amherst for the summer last summer and the fun paradox of emily dickinson is there's probably no more public amherst resident in history than emily right. dickinson right yeah right? there you go so <laughs> how how yeah. it is that this sort of um you know however inaccurate or, or biographically incomplete it is to refer to as a kind of social island is yeah. also the most public uh of that place and time yeah so we get another we get another character um in the in the sort of concluding movement of the poem david it's not emily dickinson but it's it's the lobsterman's wife who if if i could just remind our listeners of these lines and then ask you to comment on them this is how the poem ends his wife in the front seat in a soft dress such as poor women wear she took it that we came i don't know how to say she said not for anything we did she said mildly from god she said what i like more than anything is to visit other islands um this is a character that like i i I hadn't been prepared to meet by the poem before this moment she sort of emerges and takes over the poem in a way and um and we get i mean there are a number of things that are interesting to me about these lines but just you know and sort of um looking over them as a whole i guess i want you to um, help us um, see our way into them. Yeah, I, I love you know it's the only offset. So sort of orthographically on the page, the only words that are offset as direct reported speech are from God. Right. Right. the The rest of it exists kind of in a space of paraphrase. Although the fact that this is also the first time in the poem where we're getting things like commas. Um, and yeah. this sense of, um, yeah, momentum, not just parataxis, but um, a relatively uh, available sense of speech. Um, she took it that we came, I don't know how to say, she said, not for anything we did, she said, mildly from God, she said. Um, she's also talking about the same problem that that difficult to note what means problem is, right? I don't know how oh, to say, right? Yeah. She's having the same experience that the poem is having. Um, right. And, and, and now rather than um, she, or, you know, whereas in the first part of the poem, the lobsterman was the, was the kind of object of attention and mm-hmm. inquiry. Now she's describing what the, the we who I take it are George and Mary or something Oppen. Yeah. We've come to her island. What she's she's sort of, um, yeah, like writing her own poem about them or something. Yeah, they they present to her the same problem that the poem is presenting to us. I suppose. Um, hmm. I I love you know his wife in the front seat. I can't help but hear this being sort of asked inter- you know questioned over the shoulder. There's this real sense of being in the car, uh, how it's moving, how awkward of an arrangement that is in which to broach a question like, what are you doing in my home? What are you doing on my island? Um, mm-hmm. And 
I, I love how odd, not for anything we did, she said, is as an expression, right? Yeah. I, I think I can take that as being, you're not here for work. Like you're not here also as, as lobstermen, but for anything we did, the, the past tense also makes it feel almost like you get banished to this island or that it is a, a consequence for an action. Oh. Um, you're, you're not here I, because you did something. You're not fleeing something. <laughs> the way I had taken the, the, that line so she took it that we came. I don't like she it's as though she knows she wants to say it seems to me you came from God. Right. Right. But yeah. but as she's saying it she's sort of preemptively qualifying or apologizing for it. She, so she's saying she's sort of interrupting herself to say I don't know how to say she, she said and then she and then I think she's saying it's not because you're acting it's it's not because of anything that you did while you were here that I'm going to say the thing that I'm about to say. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. That yeah. There's, there's That's no, how I take um, the not for anything we did. Right. It's not that um, you've come to this island. I'm not saying this because you were behaving in a kind of proselytizing way or whatever that right, would, or whatever a benevolent it would mean. way. You didn't yeah, solve, right. you, knew, you didn't deus ex machina as a, out of some sort of problem. Right, um, right. But I also think that that, I don't know how to say, is also like... Is it annoying to use a term like cringe? Like there's there is something about what needs to be expressed here that also feels to get back to the proof rock problem, right? Mm-hmm. Are the conditions actually appropriate for me to say what I need to say or what what would be true to say? Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She took it that we came from God, she said. Um what I yeah, like. There's also something it, funny about the word mildly, which mild- which I think I think um, I want to take as a, an adverb that's um, modifying the way she says it. She says yeah. it mildly. Um, it would be odd to come su- from God mildly, right? Yeah, right. Like, yeah, y- I you've guess been so. assigned a divine mission with indifference or with sort of half-hearted uh, intent. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, I ca- I can't hear, especially in my memory now of hearing Oppen's reading of the poem, which I guess I tried to do my impression of as I just read the last lines. That I, you know, I did it differently. I, I'm sure the, the the repetition of that she said, you know, whatever it's called, like the dialogue tag, or you know, the um, yeah, the I don't know how to say. She said line break. Not for anything we did, she said, line break, mildly from God. She said, so three lines in a row end with the phrase she said. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really each like... Each time they're punctuated differently, but yeah, go on, say something. Well, it's, just, it's very um, uh, directly rhetorical in a way, in the sense of rhetorical device, in a way that Oppen typically shies away from. And even you can think about mm. that moment up the page and the sights of the island, the ledges in the rough sea seen from the road and the harbor, and the post office. It's almost like the the second of the four lines there, the ledges, uh, emerges just to take anaphora off the table, right? That the poem is not yeah. inviting you to read it in this sort of rhetorical logic. But we get by the end of this poem, and I think, you know, I, I said this to you over email before we had a chance to do this, that this is one of these moments where I, I actually understand epistrophe, that is to say the repetition of a clause or word at the end of a line, to really be distinct from anaphora, um, in mm-hmm. that it does feel like it's gathering, it's conclusive each time that we get to the she said, right? right. This is it's gathering. Um, yeah, yeah it, it is letting you know that there are all of these different ways of arriving at this moment of, of you know wanting to convey to through the poem this um, it's not really a conversation because we never hear from them, right? This right. statement, this 
know, hypothetical blessing um, that that they they receive. Um, I think again, quite seriously, that that she's, uh, you know, sorry, can I use a word like miracle? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, right. That, that there is, there is something, uh, unanticipatable and, and a, a reminder of the enormity of, uh, the unapprehendable mm. enormity of the design in just getting to know each other. Right. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. And, and, that, like, and, and yeah, go ahead. Well, just that there, you know, superficially there are things about the Oppens that could make meeting them and knowing them seem, you know, totally strange. Uh, and I could imagine that, but I think also, you know, they live on this, another island in this bay as well. So in a strict geographic sense, it shouldn't be so weird that they met each right. other. Right. But it is, right? It is mm. always a little bit of a miracle to meet another person. Absolutely. Especially if you think of people as islands of a sort. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is, I, I don't know whether you were going to go there, but the done expression, right? No man is an yeah. island. Um doesn't come from a done poem. It comes from uh, a bit of devotional prose that he wrote. Um, I, I right? had initially yeah. thought that it was a sermon, but I, I don't know for certain that he ever read it or delivered it publicly. Uh, it has very much probably become the best known line of Dunn's to the extent that I think that most people don't know that it's done when they say it or hear it. Yeah. But that um, this too is about how we understand ourselves to be part of something that exists far beyond us. Yeah. I, I, you know, I I wasn't going, I mean, I'm glad that you you said that, but I I wasn't going to go there exactly. I I, instead was going to say something about how that, that she said moment. I mean, I think, I think you're quite right about the the way it's functioning at the end of the line. It, It also in a kind of more plain spoken way to me, sounds like the way people tell stories, like, um, you know, like if I said to you, David, so, so I, you know, I was talking to this other person and I said to her, I said, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, in the way that, you right. know, so she says to me, she says, I have you know, the annoying tag of using like, you know, I was like this and they were like this. Yeah. Were, yeah, right. yeah. 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 So that repetition. So there's something kind of remarkable, I think, about the way that it, it both feels like the poem at its most talky mm-hmm. and kind of idiomatic, like storytelling. Yeah. Um, and yet it feels, it also feels kind of incantatory at the same mm-hmm. time, which is a hard trick to pull to be both things at <laughs> once. And then we get those last, so then the final, she said, comes at a line break before the final stanza, but it doesn't have any punctuation. So it feels more sort of in jam. She said, and we go right into the final two lines of the poem. What I like more than anything is to visit other islands. And, and the poem ends, trails off in these ellipses. Um, so there's something kind of like magically, um, I keep using that word here, I think, but, or versions of it, but the sort of, um, aperture opening about the end of that poem, those final two lines of the poem. And I wonder as a, as a way to, you know, conclude, or before we wrap up the conversation, if you have anything to say about the last two lines of the poem, David. Um, yeah, I think there's like, there's an epiphany here, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it's um, it's an epiphany that I know others have have described as a little disappointing, um, or that there's a there's maybe an, an obviousness or, or or a sort of homiletic character to them that feels a little uh, disappointing after the 
the scene and the the structure that's conjured, but I, I just I disagree. I, I think that um, I'm not disappointed. This, no, 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 no. <laughs> I think um, first of all that we the ellipses I think uh, do a number of things, but one of them is they flag the absence of the she said that gathering mm-hmm. sort of conclusive, but also authorizing gesture. Right. Um, we certainly by the punctuation of the lines, I think are invited to uh, receive those final two lines as her speaking as well. But there's also a departure from a pattern that the poem has established in a way that feels like maybe this is how we share a statement, right? Um, that, right. that the poem is not saying, this is what she said, and I'm going to leave it with her, nor is the poem saying, I'm pulling back from what she is speaking or saying to, to give you my the poem's conclusive right. gesture but to say that um we're sharing this moment right this is right. Uh, a, a moment in which yeah i think um and, and vis- apt th- then that it that it's a, it's it, the content of the moment is is this statement about visiting islands yeah, yeah. visiting other islands yeah. right and that you know even in as much as the metaphoricity of the island i think is tempting here it's also like it's it's literal and real and so that the fact that this is all taking place over the course of a visit to an island is a reminder that um you can live the metaphor right this is like it doesn't simply have to be abstract language uh it doesn't simply have to be illustrative but actually uh, points at things that are happening in the world um yeah points at the world beyond language um Mm. yeah I can I That's can I great. do my it's probably a better place to leave it then. I just want to work in that where I think a little bit of where that she said is coming from. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Say something about where the she said is coming, where you well, think it's coming so, from, David. And this is, I think, um one might be tempted to think that intensely leftist uh Jewish uh communist politically active, uh, resolutely American George Oppen exists quite far from T.S. Eliot, even in as much as I think that the gesture to proof rock was incredibly useful. Um, but uh, just about a year before this poem is written, Oppen is asked to respond to a survey that a poetry magazine is circulating about writing poems for American or English accents. And what kind of word choice, what, what use, how are you um, composing with a particular accent in mind? And Oppen kind of dismisses the terms of the question by referring to the ventriloquisms of T.S. Eliot and the unanticipated cadences of the Beatles as two instances mm-hmm. for why and how one might not want to limit themselves to a singular idea of accent when they write poetry. And yeah. so... That this poem is written a year after the single She Said, She Said comes out, <laughs> I can't help but feel like, and it is a poem, and I, I feel like such a nerd for having done this, but like started to scan the poem, and you can certainly make an argument <laughs> that yeah. the Beatles song conforms to ballad meter. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Th- that's great. No, I love that. I love that. And I love the I love the idea of... Um, of bringing Elliot and the Beatles together in that way, sort of each each traversing the Atlantic, but in opposite directions or something. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Um, and and um, and and certainly the Beatles might help us think about what it, you know to to go back to what you were saying earlier about the paraliterary 
qualities of um, popular, you know, f- forms. Yeah, um, we're we're really yeah. discouraged as professional critics to from taking songs seriously as poetry, but mm-hmm. there they are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She said. She said. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, um, send us out, please, by uh, reading the poem yourself. Absolutely. Thanks. Ballad. Astrolabes and lexicons, once in the great houses. A poor lobsterman met by chance on Swan's Island, where he was born. We saw the old farmhouse, propped and leaning on its hilltop, on that island where the ferry runs. A poor lobsterman. His teeth were bad. He drove us over that island in an old car. A well-spoken man, hardly real. As he knew in those rough fields, lobster pots and their gear smelling of salt, the rocks outlived the classicists, the rocks and the lobstermen's huts. And the sights of the island, the ledges and the rough sea seen from the road, and the harbor and the post office, difficult to know what one means, to be serious and to know what one means. An island has a public quality. His wife in the front seat in a soft dress such as poor women wear. She took it that we came, I don't know how to say, she said, not for anything we did, she said, mildly, from God. She said, what I like more than anything is to visit other islands. Well, David Hobbs, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and spending so much time with me and with our listeners. Um, and it was it was totally fascinating for me to get to to get to learn about George Oppen with you. So thanks for being here. What a treat. This was, this was so much fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you listeners for hanging out with us and um, please make sure you're following the podcast and um, leave us a rating and review and all that good stuff. Share, share, more importantly, share an episode with a friend um, and um, stay tuned for more fun episodes coming up soon. Be well, everyone.